about there's a few different things and um, one of the things was we, we went through a couple of terms and we started with like a case scenario of a Bible study so if you guys are there um, if you have it with you I'm going to kind of flip back to that really quick at the beginning so right, you're going to this Bible study and they read John 10 9 I am the door if anyone enters through me he shall be saved and shall go in and go out and find pasture and then each person shares I believe that Jesus is the door of hope he invites us to graze in his pasture and feast upon his body every time we take the Eucharist. And this was, someone asked, well, what does it mean to you? Okay, so that's what Fred said. Nancy said, perhaps we mistakenly see Jesus as a person. Who's to say he wasn't actually a walking, talking door? Right? That's right. This may be somewhat fictional. Right? And then Percy, I believe he's the key to understanding the Old Testament. If you want to understand Isaiah, you have to walk through the door of Jesus. And they, Wendy, perhaps he's saying that he's the only way to be saved and there's no other entry into God's kingdom apart from him. And so you have these four different interpretations. Right? This is what this verse means to me. Okay, well this is what it means to me. This is what it means to me. And so what we find is that oftentimes when we study the Bible, people can have this view that the interpretation of Scripture is individual. And you remember what what were some of the issues that that created when you have a what this means to you? Human error. Mm -hmm. yeah. How so? Like, where does the error come in? Um, I mean, a lot of us are like we're all Christians, so like we have <coughs> somewhat like the same beliefs, but. Even still, we live different experiences, mm -hmm. and so then that can change our interpretations of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the individuals were different, like Fred, Nancy, Percy, Wendy, they all <laughs> different, right? And in general, right, what's the what issues are created when we say this is what the this is what this passage means to me versus what? It's putting your your own thoughts as authoritative over the scripture as opposed to it teaching you. Yeah, yeah, and 
when we say that, kind of what we're saying is that the meaning uh, doesn't necessarily come just from the words on the page or from the scriptures, right? So when we say what it means to me, right, this is basically, we're determining what it means. But when we bring in the individual or the reader, we're talking about what it means to me, right? That somehow my own perspective influences the, the meaning of Scripture, all right? And so that's one thing that we've talked through, those different ways of interpreting and how each one of those kind of tends to put the emphasis on the reader and the interpreter to create the meaning and takes the focus off of necessarily the scripture itself. So let's look. We should be on, at the bottom of page three, we had just started talking about the literal approach, right? So read this little passage to you. So also known as literal grammatical historical method. So we arrive at the meaning of scripture by a normal reading and read the Bible like the newspaper, or I might put in like a history book or like a poetry book, like you read it as it was intended to be read. All right? We take into account the grammar, the syntax, historical background. And when you say literal, sometimes people may be like, uh, or the name of the lady on the front, Jesus must be really a door because he says, I am the door. So that's not what we mean by literal. It means that uh, we take into account things like figurative language, metaphors, analogies, hyperbole, all the things that we use in all of our other facets of language, we take all those skills to apply how is the language being used in Scripture. And we interpret the Scripture based on all of those abilities, trying to discern what do we see in Scripture from the text itself and let that text determine what the meaning is. All right? And so one of the issues that we try and address with this is where do we really want the meaning to come from? How God intended it. How God intended it. All right. And let's follow that through. So how did God choose to reveal himself in Scripture? What did he use? Who did he use? Apostles, prophets. Yeah, you have all these different authors, right? Um, different time periods. What? How else did the authors of Scripture? What can we say about different authors of Scripture? How are they maybe different from us, or different from one another? That's right. That's right. And so we're taking account. There's kind of a dual authorship. It wasn't written, right? You can't, when you say who wrote 1 Corinthians, you could say the Holy Spirit, you can say Paul, right? Both of them uh, wrote that. And then how do they differ from us today as readers, right? What are some ways in which we differ? It was a long time ago, yes. You guys are pushing my, I have this little metric in my brain that's like, I have a little timer. It's like, okay, wait. You guys are testing my timer. It was a long time ago. Not quite in a galaxy far, far away. Right? 
So we have time, which separates us. What else separates us from authors of scripture? Language. Language. Mm -hmm. So primarily, um, we have Hebrew and Greek. What else separates us? If they were culture. Mm -hmm. If they were an apostle, they actually saw Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Their per what they personally experienced, what they were eyewitnesses of. Yeah, yeah, they lived in a different part of the world, and many of the authors lived in different parts from one another as well. And so I bring these things up because as we talk about interpreting, sometimes um, it can be wrong, the wrong approach can be, let's, let's bring the Bible back and, and interpret it into what it means today, for us today. And they try and take what they wrote originally and make it, this is what it means today in terms of how it would equate to our culture. And really, um, we ought to be taking ourselves and trying to go back to understand what it meant at that time, that place, and that culture, and that region, and that language, so that we can understand its meaning. And so one last thing I would say is that when we come to an interpretation that gets meaning, there can be many different applications. get into that more later, but understanding the meaning, the one interpretation or the true meaning, what did the author mean, that can be interpreted in lots of different ways, different contexts. And so we want to make sure we kind of keep those distinct from one another. All right. So one of the things that we're going to get into today is how would you respond to the charge that no matter how hard anyone tries, like you're talking about, we can never really be objective because we're influenced by our language, our culture, the place we live, right? It's hard for us in the United States to understand what's going on in the Ukraine because if we've never been there, we don't know the language, we don't know the history. So how do you respond to that when we think about the scriptures? What would we say? And I think we read from, from Corinthians last week, right, about how the Spirit helps us to understand spiritual truth. Okay. All right, well, we're going to talk about some specific ways, I guess. So the first one is called the false antithesis. Does, it, does anybody have the handout? Yes, awesome, all right. Okay, so... Um, if I have a volunteer that would read number one there, what's the false antithesis? You want to read it? Go for it. <clears throat> the problem with this objection is that he assumes that you cannot know anything unless you know it omnisciently. Therefore, you must know someone perfectly or you can't know it at all. The antithesis makes it impossible to prove such events as I graduated from the University of... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, okay. <laughs> to Samaria, Russia. 
<laughs> this factual skepticism makes it impossible to know or understand anything, including the purveyors of this postmodern ideology. As we shall see, there are ways to know something truly, even if you do not know it completely. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the first objection, right? And do you, have you guys ever kind of recognized this, or can you think of a context where you've heard someone use this idea? Since you can't know it fully, you don't really know. <coughs> Reminds me of like <clears throat> an ancient Chinese culture, like the Tao Te Ching is like their Bible essentially, mm -hmm. and it claims that you can't ever fully know anything, so like don't even try. Okay, yeah. And what would we say first of all? Can can we ever know anything fully? No. So we could we could agree on that, right? We're we're not omniscient, and we're never going to know anything fully. And so, what? How could we then respond to, how does that affect our study of the Bible? We can't know every possible thing. Good morning. But what we know is sufficient for our salvation and sanctification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sufficient. Right? We, we, we can know enough. Mm -hmm. Can you guys think of any examples of things that maybe if you've worked with young kids or remember in your own life, something that maybe you understood when you were younger or you see them that they can understand, but maybe they don't understand it fully. Or maybe you've come to understand it a little bit more deeply. Can you think of any examples? I mean, little kids have a very um, simple understanding of obedience. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to obey because mom and dad say so. Mm -hmm. And I think as we get older, we kind of lose that simple understanding of obedience. Like, why do I have to obey? We always have to know the law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. An example I'll give is, uh, you know, when I understood the gospel for the first time, um, I, under I would say I understood enough that Jesus, you know, saved me. Um, but there was a tremendous amount that I didn't understand in the atonement and the Trinity and the Incarnation and the, all those things that play a part in how God saves us. Election, I didn't understand any of that. So I didn't understand it fully, but I did understand it truly. So I knew that Jesus did die for me, that I was a sinner, that trusting in him. So there's a sense in which you can understand something truly, even though it's not comprehensively. Okay, and So that might be a good answer is that we're not seeking or purporting to say we're going to reach a perfect or omniscient understanding, but we can know some things are true, even if they're incomplete. Okay. All right. Thanks for volunteering. Twenty-five pastor points. Dave's giving me the uh, the platinum pastor point card today. All right. What about fusion of horizons? Anybody? Go ahead. Fusion of horizons. Mm -hmm. To use the above analogy, the factory worker lives in his own horizon of understanding, and Paul lives in the other. But the other factory worker, through, though, through careful study and research, is able to move closer to the horizon of Paul. He can learn Greek, read all of Paul's letters, study the origins of the Pharisees, etc. At the same time, he seeks to distance himself from his own horizon, purposefully discarding cultural biases which may cloud his judgment. 
For instance, in reading about his union with Christ, he remembered that they did not have labor unions during that time and endeavors to see what Paul means. As he advances, he can have fusion of horizons where he can see things from Paul's perspective and evaluate his own writings from Paul's perspective. This does not mean he has become a Pauline scholar, but he can move closer to the truth and thereby reject certain interpretations as false, an activity which most minds are reluctant to do. Yeah, yeah. So if you're highlighting anything, right? Rejecting certain interpretations as false. Okay. It's kind of a little trick that you'll you'll hear a lot in arguments is that they'll 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 not want they'll say they don't have the authority to reject anything. All the while that means they can reject your any any claims. So it's kind of a strange, strange little trick. So this is we talked about this a little bit. So what are some things that maybe our speaking of the factory worker, that we living in this current time, this current place, our current culture, that we need to distance ourselves from to get closer to Paul. Right? We're, one example might be when I read about slavery, my picture of slavery is based on the American experience, slavery in the South, things I've read in history books, things I've been taught in my classes, things, images I've seen in media. That colors what I think of in terms of slavery. And what Paul experienced as slavery 2,000 years ago in a different country, different place, right? It's trying to understand how has my... So what are some other issues that maybe are colored by where we can seek to approach Paul's horizon or the author's horizon of Scripture? It might be Moses even further back. What were some things the factory worker did? He can what? Yes? I think they were slaves to worshiping idols. Yeah, which seems very foreign to us. All kinds of different. Mm -hmm. You worship this idol for rain, you worship this idol for a good harvest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you guys think of a passage or a part of context where they're addressing that idol? I can think of several in the New Testament. Corinthians, Paul talks about this little bit of division they have between people eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols and what they should do. And there's a certain meaning behind what was going on, but there's an application behind that in terms of how are we to act when people in our body have different convictions about how they're to worship the Lord, like they did in that day. Some felt convicted that it was sin to eat this meat sacrificed to idols. Others knew that God had declared all these foods clean. And so how to live and interact with one another. So knowing the context of the idols, what are, what are some other things? What can we do to either draw closer to Paul's context or further for us distance ourselves from our own? Yeah, what did you do? Yeah. Except when he could read all Paul's letters, study the origins of the Pharisees, etc. Yeah. 
Yeah, so learning Greek might be, right, not the most initial yeah. one, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but one simple thing could just be to, you know, have, have an app or an interlinear where you can at least, if you're interested in a particular word, look and see what that word means. Where did it come from? Um, why would you think it would be important to read all of Paul's letters if I was trying to understand? Well, when you read Paul's letters, they're different than things that other people wrote, mm -hmm. and so you can kind of pick up on his style and mm -hmm. what he does from one book to the other. Like, mm -hmm. if he does this thing in this book, well, then he's probably going to kind of have that same style in the other books mm -hmm. that he wrote. Yeah, exactly. And I guess to try and think about how we use normal language today, if I get, you know, an email from my wife, and, or if I get an email from my boss, right, I, my relationship with those different people inter helps me interpret the meaning behind what they're saying. So being more, the more familiar you are with those individuals, those authors, the more helpful that can be. All right, then we've got the hermeneutical spiral, okay? Anybody, can you guys, who's got the hermeneutical spiral? Number three. Jason, thank you for following I'm ready. Go. <clears throat> Similar to the fusion of horizons, the factory worker asks the text questions, and the text answers them. These answers subtly change the man, the man and shape his additional questions. In the middle of this circular exchange is the truth, and as each question is asked and answered, the radius of the circle shortens, drawing the factory worker closer to the truth. For instance, factory worker, who is Jesus? text, the carpenter's son's son reared in rural Israel 2,000 years ago who claimed to be the Christ and was crucified. Factory worker, was he really the son of God? Text, Jesus attests to this, and it was confirmed by his teaching and miracles. It is also confirmed by his death, burial, and resurrection. Factory worker, why did Jesus have to die? He died on account of, his, of your sins and trespasses against a holy God. As Oh. Keep going. Keep, Keep going. going. Okay. Yeah. As you can see, each answer changes the questioner and his future questions. If he asks enough questions, he will become a believer, which will shape additional questions. When he keeps interacting with the Bible, he descends into a tighter spiral around the truth. All right. Yeah. So, for example, if he if he has never heard of Jesus, right? He's very far from really understanding about who he is, right? So his first question, and when we approach any question, right, we ask a big question, and as we study, we start to find out what Jesus, who Jesus claimed he was, who other people said that he was, and that creates that new question. Okay, he claimed he was the Son of God, so was he? So once we know that answer, it makes, we have a little bit more tightly defined picture of what Scripture says about who he is. And so as we continue asking questions, each question answers, and it kind of automatically eliminates some things that are, okay, he did not claim to be just a teacher, right, which is a commonly, he was just a great teacher, he never claimed to be God. So we see that that's no longer a valid interpretation of scripture. And as we go through, we get closer and closer asking more and more questions. And so our distance between, like, that omniscient truth is just getting, we're getting closer and closer to knowing more and more. So, I think the key point is to remember that as we study, not only 
is our interpretation changing, but oftentimes we're, we're changing as individuals. And so God is working through those questions to shape us and to shape our questions. Um, this last one's also is kind of a similar analogy, so I'll kind of read here. Um, I, I wanted to almost edit this because the asymptote is like a mathematical term. And I, was like, <laughs> I don't know if this is exactly te the technical, but you get the idea, right? An asymptote is, right, you have this curve that's approaching a line without ever touching it. It's narrowing the gap. It's getting closer and closer. And so, right, you think about the child attending Awana, learning a little bit about Romans, moving closer to the truth, reads the entire book, then he reads a commentary, then he learns Greek, and so constantly gaining closer and closer uh, distance away from what the truth of the scripture means as he studies more and more kind of closing that gap. And it's okay that he never like has that omniscient perfect knowledge at the end. Right? Like Judy was saying, God reveals uh, what we need to know enough that's sufficient and we continue to pursue them through that. Okay? So, okay, here's, here's the question. So like, one of the things is, you know, how can we, if we're never like fully, if we never know anything fully, we know it truly, but we don't know fully, so uh, can we just reject things as being absolutely false? Like one example that, that Dave had in here is the interpretation that Paul embraced loving monogamous homosexual relationships just as valid as the interpretation that Paul condemned all forms of homosexuality. Right, right. So sometimes we have to make that clear, right? When the, when the claims contradict, right? Maybe they're both wrong, but they can't both be right at the same time. So we have to kind of reject that. All right. So those are kind of some aspects that describe why um, and how that, that literal hermeneutic works. And so now what we want to do is kind of walk you through, like when you're doing a Bible study, when you're reading on your own, doing your devotions, whatever you're doing, when you're listening to a passage, um, when you're being edited, listening to a sermon, um, what are some good principles or rationales behind how we use that literal grammatical historical approach? All right, so we're in uh, rationale for the little literal hermeneutic. So it's our chosen method because it seeks to understand the passage as the author intended it to be understood. Or you might say, as the original audience would have understood it. While we cannot have omniscient knowledge of the original authorial intent, we can have increasingly certain knowledge through rigorous Bible study along with the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit. The following is a brief defense of this hermeneutic. Okay. And I think, you know, if I was underlining anything, um, it'd probably be those two things. That it's through rigorous Bible study, right? We're and along with the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you guys would, go ahead and turn to Matthew. Um, Matthew 13. Sometimes I have a hard time going through all of this material because there's, there's a lot that's... We're, we're going long periods without reading from the scriptures themselves. So, Jesus is... Uh, this is a section where Jesus gives the parable of the sower. And I think this helps to uh, kind of help instill 
these two aspects. Okay. So we're going to read, read kind of a longer passage here. We're going to read the first 16 verses of, uh, of Matthew 13. Anybody, anybody wants to read nice and loud? Go for it. All right. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So, um, the interesting thing, right, sometimes when we talk about the clarity of Scripture, that we can know what God has revealed to us. Um, we want to make sure that we remember that it's also, um, it's not just a purely academic endeavor, and it's not just the literal grammatical historical method that leads us true. There has to be an additional help and aid of the Holy Spirit. So in those, those times, Jesus, right, gave that example, right? The seed went out, and there were many whose hearts hardened, they didn't have ears to hear, they didn't have eyes to see, they couldn't understand what he was revealing to them because, as he said there, this people's heart has grown dull, right, with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed. But he says to, to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So for us, as we approach scripture, right, it, we're totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and as we depend on him, we use this method to be the best way of interpreting and understanding what it is that he's trying to reveal to us through the, that written word. Okay? So, first part of this, we'll get into a few of these. The purpose of language, okay? Right? Why did God create language? How is language useful in the way he's revealed it? So, the purpose of language itself requires a literal interpretation. Created in his image, God gifted man with language to understand, to pray, to communicate to and about God. And there's two ramifications. If God originated language for the purpose of communication, and if God is all-wise, then right, our result is that we can believe that he saw to it that the means that he gave us, language, was sufficient right, to 
sustain the purpose that he had for communicating both between us and between God. And second, it makes sense that God would expect men to use language in its normal sense. He does not expect us to use encrypted speech or communication at deeper, right, deeper level outside the channel of this normal language. All right. We talked a little bit about, I think, it last time how one of the false interpretations was, well, to read a hidden meaning into everything in Scripture. Right? The jars of water were just representative of this, or 153 fish means that there's 153 whatever. Okay. So, B, right, the, why do we need this passage? The need for objectivity. If one does not employ the normal interpretation, then the truth of Scripture is lost, especially when the reader, and not the plain sense of Scripture, determines its meaning. This is why the subjective, what the Bible means to me, interpretations are fraught with peril. So can you guys think of any examples, um, I see these um, often, where someone, there's a text that clearly teaches something opposite of what someone is wanting it to say. Maybe they're someone that's claiming to be a believer, but they want to add a different interpretation. Can you think of any examples of passages that are intentionally interpreted in a way that's contrary to its natural, obvious meaning. That's right. Before every football game. Right. Or, I'm going to make a million in my business. Right? That's great. Can you think of any other ones that are just, that's not what it means. I couldn't put a finger on it, but one that comes to my mind is when you read Old Testament promises mm-hmm. that are specifically to Israel, uh-huh. and somebody cherry picks it, and they're like, "See, that's for me." Yes. For you. And it's like, yes. Well, that might not work out so well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It might not. I somewhat, I'm somewhat hesitant, but like, what's what's uh, you guys have probably I always did uh, used uh, the verse from Jeremiah. What's the verse? Twenty-nine, eleven. Yeah. Right. And what does it what does it say? I know plans I have for you. Yeah. <laughs> plans to prosper you. Yeah. And uh, what what's the context of that verse? Do we does anybody know? I think it's when they're going into the promised land and it's fair that you know, the big guy is in there. Is that it? So you're you're getting warmer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> getting warmer. Is it? Yeah. So right. God's like, you're going to go into exile, but it'll be okay because I am. Yeah. All this horrible stuff is going to happen to you. Bad stuff is coming. But I know the plans I have for you, right? A hope and a future, right? He's, he's not saying everything's going to be awesome. Just wait, right? He's saying, no, it's going to look really, really bad. Right? So it might be, right? And it's going to be bad. Well, and the hard part is that you can. Can, there are truths for and a, an application for us, but we have to know the context to understand right. and <laughs> what that, what that would mean for us in today. You know, like yeah. and I think you know in that context, there was a lot of the false prophets who were saying, "No, you know, the Lord will never let you lose Jerusalem. You'll always have this, mm-hmm. and you should go. You're going to win this battle." And 
He's like, no, you're, you're going to go into exile. <laughs> so that's kind of in a scenario where, like, understanding the context helps you have a deeper, richer understanding of what he means when he says, right, I know the plans that I have for you. Or just knowing, like, what the Bible says and doesn't say. Because some people could say, well, the Bible says this thing. And right. Like, no, I don't really think it says that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's very common, especially among politicians. You know in the Bible it says the Lord helps those who help themselves. I heard I heard that one this year or two ago. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> right? Um, and even the passage that we read in um, Matthew, where it says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So obviously that this context is talking about understanding the words of God. But I've heard many people in the last six months in a couple different scenarios, the Bible teaches that the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. It's like, because it says, who has, more will be given, and who doesn't, that will be taken away. So you can see how, like, um, right, there's, a, there's lots of possible ways to, to misinterpret. Right. But I say to you, mm-hmm. right, and so there's a correction in that of like, yeah. the Bible does say that, like, it's in mm-hmm. there it's as a correction, and so like, yeah, there's that context that's missing along with it. Very much so, very much so. And I think that one one thing that has been frustrating but helpful for me over the years too is like these tools are helpful to individual believers and the church to help one another understand what the Bible rightly means. But they really don't help in an argument or a debate where someone is not desiring to know what the word says. Um, it's kind of a, sometimes a waste of throwing your pearls before swine where it's like the goal and intent in some conversations is not to understand scripture or to know what it truly means, but to attack. And so sometimes it might be more wise to discern what the meaning of this conversation or the intent of the person is before going into the literal historical grammatical. So let's talk about the example of the Bible. This is one of the most powerful ones. So the prophecies of the first advent of Christ were fulfilled literally. Bethlehem meant Bethlehem. When Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, he literally was pierced. There was a literal hole in his body. There are some instances that we call typological interpretations where the imagery of the Old Testament, so out of Egypt I called my son, are related to Christ. But these are generally exceptions to the literal fulfillment of numerous other prophecies. These typological interpretations in the New Testament are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's not that we are adding in that these were typological. It's that the Holy Spirit is explicitly saying this particular interpretation um, is what we have given through the Holy Spirit by the apostles. So additionally, the reason we can understand these interpretations is because we interpret them literally, right? And so you want to always ask the question, right, how did the people in the Bible interpret Scripture? How did Jesus interpret Scripture? And we have a great example in the New Testament and even the Old Testament of quoting other passages, other texts. So there's a great deal of example there for us. All right, and so now, that's our our rationale for, like, why we're using it. We, We believe that the language has meaning, 
we need to be objective, so we're going to put the meaning onto the language from the text. And that's the example that we see used in the Bible, that the meaning comes from the words themselves who have a, that have a literal, normal reading. Any questions right now as you're thinking through what we've talked about when it comes to the literal, historical, grammatical, that you're like brewing around in your head, things that we've talked about? So interpret grammatically. Since words are the vehicles of thoughts, and since the meaning of any passage must be determined by a study of the words therein, and their relationship in the sentences, determining grammatical sense of the text must be the starting point for normal <coughs> interpretation. We were talking about the eyes on a conversation with somebody recently about that. And um, so again, what were what are our main languages for scripture? Greek and Hebrew. And then when we talk about, um, there's what was the third one? That's Aramaic, right? And even then, sometimes when we talked about differences, say in the Gospels, why are there sometimes differences in the, the Greek that they use? What's one possible explanation? When they give a quotation, it's not word for word the same. Because you don't have, like, like say, like, love, they have different words for love, really. Yeah, so we've got their Greek to English. So in our English translations, we can have a few different ways of interpreting their Greek. And we also have um, that many of the, those conversations were, were, we believe, spoken in what language? A lot of them were in Aramaic in that time. Okay, And so the authors are translating right the word for word into from Aramaic into Greek. Right? So it's, off, it's most likely that Jesus encounters with the Jews of that time, he was not speaking Greek with them, and they were not speaking Greek back to him. And in general, most of them were in Aramaic. And so there's kind of a, so you, each um, author is choosing to interpret that Aramaic into that Greek. Okay. And so they could choose slightly different words to kind of bring up the point of what they're trying to emphasize. So this one is a huge one, right? It's the king. I don't know why it's B. It should be A. I don't know. <laughs> Interpret contextually. Words and sentences do not stand in isolation. Therefore, the context must be studied in order to see the relation that each verse sustains in the, that which precedes and to that which follows. Involved are the immediate context of the theme and scope of the whole book. Right. So when, we, when we're looking at, usually we have a, a verse that we're looking at. And so, even more, right, we could zoom in and say, what does this word mean? And oftentimes, the words mean comes from how it's being used in that particular verse. Right? And as we move outward, what would maybe be the next layer? Paragraph. Paragraph or chapter, yeah. So, uh, uh, might say the passage or paragraph. Passage. And again... I think sometimes it's important to remember that the 
the numbering, the headings, the chapters, those are all not parts of the original author's work. Okay, So those were added in later. So sometimes it's helpful to just view the text without any of those things in there instead of assuming there's a not, there has to be a break between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. So there's the passage itself, okay, and what would be maybe an even larger context. Okay, and bigger than that. Okay, so once we get outside the book, what are some other contexts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd say maybe there's one in between there as well. Author's additional work. Yeah, the author. Mm-hmm. So if we are, um, you might even put in here as well, like, um, like genre. Like, is it an epistle? Is it a gospel? Is it a historical? Is it wisdom? Is it poetry? Like, that influences the way in which I'm going to interpret that language. I think we'll talk about more like when I read a proverb versus a command of one of the, given by one of the apostles, or versus a, is it narrative uh, where it's describing, or is it um, instructive where it's prescribing? So all those are contextual differences. Would parallel passages have any place in there? Because like, you know, like sometimes you see like a, a an account, like especially in the Gospels, like the same account given mm-hmm. three different times, and it gives you greater yeah. understanding of what actually occurred. Absolutely, and that can be right. We see that both in the Gospels, but we see it in Old Testament, where you have yes. the same historical event is referenced by maybe the prophets. Like I was reading in Isaiah today, and it's referencing you know Hezekiah and Sennacherib, and right that's mentioned in other historical books. And they add some different context. Definitely. And so that's kind of that next good transition. Compare scripture <laughs> with scripture. <laughs> so the dual authorship of the Bible makes it necessary not only to know the human author's meaning, but also God's. So God's meaning might not be fully revealed in the original human author's writing, but it is revealed when scripture is compared with scripture. Um, we must allow for censor which allows for a fuller though directly related meaning in mind in the mind of the divine author of scripture so this is again an area where if uh, if you're approaching the bible as a purely man-made uh man-created work the there can't it doesn't allow for this possibility that the same mind authored or had the same meaning behind um, can interpret all the different passages so we can't say that the human authors of Scripture always understood the full implications of their own words. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can discover the fuller intention of the divine author. All right, now, a little warning here. Right, Using the Bible to interpret the Bible is not foolproof. You have to use the right portions of the Bible to interpret the Bible. Certain texts are more suited than others. For instance, Romans is better suited to help us understand Ephesians than, say, James. Right? And why is that? Same author, right? That's exactly right. At the same time, the New Testament refers to many Old Testament events. Thus, it makes sense to seek to understand the Old Testament event in its context and then see how the New Testament uses it. Um, so this is a particularly helpful for me, um, again, when I talk about understanding, like, Genesis. 
Genesis is quoted quite a bit um, in the New Testament by Jesus, quoting from about Adam and Eve, about um, Cain and Abel, um, the days of Noah, right? So there's these references, and so you get hints and clues. How should I read Genesis? Well, how did Jesus read Genesis? Right? That's a very, very helpful way to use Scripture to help interpret Scripture. Okay, and then this last one is something that um, we kind of have as a more of a unique than maybe earlier places where we were still, the scripture was still being written, is that we can realize that revelation was given over a long period of time. So while Isaiah may have prophesied about the suffering servant on the cross, his knowledge of that event was not as complete as John's. And beginning in Genesis, biblical history adds layers as to our understanding of God, Jesus, and salvation. So with this said, we should not assume that Abraham was fully informed and interpret his understanding of events in light of his location and the progress of Revelation. Um, yeah, there's the question here. How does this concept help us understand why we can eat bacon, whereas the Old Testament saints could not? So why can we eat bacon? Yeah, and we learn about the new covenant from from Christ and from the New Testament. We made it through a lot today. Closing thoughts, closing questions. That's really This is often, this progressive, uh, this question will come up a lot with, with often with believers like in Old Testament saints, how could they be saved? Right? There's this progressive revelation, something we talk about with our kids a lot. How did that, because they, what did they know about the Savior? Right? They were looking forward to it instead of looking back at it. And so it's a helpful kind of understanding that they can understand it truly, even though it may not have been as fully as we understand it now. Well, let me pray for us. And we'll continue on with our time. Lord, I just thank you for this morning and for our chance to talk about the study of Scripture. I do pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would guide us and direct us in our studies. And I pray that you'd use each one of us to ask good questions, to grow and to learn in such a way that we become a student of your Word, that we might not purely understand it in an academic sense, but that we would know that it is your word has been written to us, for us, that we might know you, and that we might grow close to you, that we might be made into your image. And I pray that you would do that and accomplish your goals. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are open to receive your word. I pray that as your word grows and it's planted in our hearts, that it would bear much fruit. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.